I'd like to begin this message by going to John chapter 6, beginning at verse 66, reading through verse 69. The Bible says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Yeshua unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Verse 69, And we believe and are sure that thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living Elohim. You know, I want to believe and be sure that my Master is the Messiah, the Son of the living Elohim. There is a living Elohim today. And there is a Son of the living Elohim. This is a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 16. And this will be part 11. Who do you say that I am? I want to talk today about certain attributes and characteristics between the Father and the Son. You know, there are attributes and characteristics that the Father has that the Son does not have. I want to notice some non-similarities between the Father and the Son. Look at John chapter 5. We're in the book of John. Chapter 5, verse 19. Once again, we're going to notice some non-similarities between the Father and the Son. In John 5, verse 19, the Bible says, Then answered Yeshua and said unto them, Verily, verily, and the word verily means truly, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And in verse 30, Yeshua says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And so he says he can't do anything of himself, but he hears, obviously, from his Father, and then he makes judgment. And this is because he doesn't seek his own will, but the will of the Father that sent him. Now, with this in mind, we need to understand and know that there are things that the Father has not chosen to hand over to the Son. Such is the case in Mark chapter 13. Let's look at Mark 13, verse 32. In context, this is talking, beginning at verse 24, about after the tribulation and the coming of the Son of Man, or the Son of Yahweh. And in verse 32, Yeshua makes an awesome statement that has been a problem for many theologians throughout many centuries. And in verse 32 it says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Now I want you to notice here that it is as the Son behind the title Father that Yeshua does not know the day nor the hour of His return. Trinitarian theologians often state that Yeshua has a divine nature, a dual nature. Part of him knows all things, and then another part of him doesn't know all things. And I don't believe that, and I'll explain why I don't here in just a second. But I want you to notice that in verse 32, it's Yeshua as the Son of the Father. It's Him as the Son of the Father that He does not know the day nor the hour. Trinitarian theologians believe that that's a divine nature when He's spoken of as the Son of the Father. But when he's spoken of, spoken of as the son of man, they believe that's his human nature. Versus son of the father, 
means his divine nature. But this passage says that as the Son of the Father, mentioning the Son and Father in the same verse, he does not know the day nor the hour. Now, we know that Yahweh definitely knows. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But this passage, out of his own mouth, the Son of Yahweh states, he does not know the day nor the hour. And of course, as I said, they say, well, part of him knows, but he limited himself and, and he doesn't know in, an, in another way. But however, I say, why don't we just say, like the Scriptures say, that he is not God, or not Elohim, Almighty, but he is the Son of the living Elohim. And this would mean that there can be dissimilarities between the Father and the Son without there being a problem. This passage is commented on by Albert Barnes in Barnes Notes on the New Testament. On Mark 13:32. I want to read what Albert Barnes states under the heading, Neither the Son. He says, This text has always presented serious difficulties. It has been asked, If, and he says, Jesus had a divine nature, how could he say that he knew not the day and hour of a future event? In reply, it has been said that the passage was missing, according to Ambrose, in some Greek manuscripts, but it is now found in all, and there can be little doubt that the passage is genuine. Others have said that the verb rendered knoweth means sometimes to make known or to reveal, and that the passage means that day and hour none makes known, neither the angels nor the Son but the Father. It is true that the word has sometimes that meaning, as in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, but then it is natural to ask, where has the Father made it known? In what place did he reveal it? After all, the passage has no more difficulty than that in Luke 2.52, where it is said that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. He had a human nature. He grew as a man in knowledge. As a man, his knowledge must be finite, for the faculties of the human soul are not infinite. As a man, he often spoke, reasoned, inquired, felt, feared, read, learned, ate, drank, and walked. Why are not all these which imply that he was a man, that as a man he was not infinite? Why are not these as difficult as the want of knowledge respecting the particular time of a future event, especially when that time must be made known by God, and when he chose that the man, Christ Jesus, should grow and think and speak as a man? End of quote. Now, obviously, Albert Barnes, when you read that, he takes the position of the dual nature. But he says that there's been difficulties with the text. Because theologians recognize that as the son of the father, Yeshua did not know the day nor the hour of his return. A.T. Robertson, one of the greatest Greek scholars that America has ever produced, states under Mark 13.32, quote, There is no doubt as to the genuineness of these words here, such as exists in Matthew 24.36. This disclaimer of knowledge naturally interpreted applies to the second coming, not to the destruction of Jerusalem, which had been definitely limited to that generation as it happened in A.D. 70, end of quote. And so, A.T. Robertson, who is a Greek scholar, uh, corroborates that the passage is definitely genuine. It's not an addition, not an interpolation, such as 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8 in part. I think that we should just say, well, you know what? He really doesn't know the day nor the hour. He said that, and therefore we should believe it. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Revelation is often used to prove that Yeshua is God Almighty. I did an outline on a, on a debate chart one time about how the book of Revelation actually disproves that belief. But in Revelation 1, we'll just read verse 1. The Bible says, The revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, which Elohim, or God, gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now here we have God giving a revelation to Yeshua the Messiah. 
Yeshua the Messiah obviously had this given over to him by the Father. So this is something that the Father has chosen to give over to the Son. But notice that Yeshua had to be given the revelation by a higher power, by a higher being. The Father did not choose, on the other hand, to give over to the Son the knowledge of the day and the hour of His return. And it ought to show us that Yeshua is not, as some people teach, omniscient. And omniscient is a fancy way of saying He knows everything all-inclusive. But dual-nature proponents may point to a scripture like John 2, 24. Let's look at John chapter 2, verse 24, because we don't want to just disregard their arguments and just make our own and not deal with the arguments of, of the opposing side. John chapter 2, verse 24 says, But Yeshua did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. They say, well, this verse teaches that there was a Yeshua that knew everything. And then they go to John 16. John 16, verse 30, where one of his disciples say to him, or a group of them, John 16, 30, Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee, by this we believe that thou camest forth from Elohim. Trinitarian and oneness theologians try to use these passages to say that Yeshua knew everything, all-inclusive. But yet we just read in Mark 13:32 that he didn't know the day nor the hour of his return. And so we know that the Bible's not going to contradict itself. It's not going to say that he knows all things, all-inclusive. And that he doesn't know at least one thing in Mark 13:32. Look at Luke chapter 2. Verse 52, this was after the occurrence in Jerusalem at the temple where he stayed behind and told his parents, didn't you understand or recognize that I was about my father's business? And obviously, his father is Yahweh. And in Luke 2.52, it says, And Yeshua increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with Elohim and with man. He increased in knowledge and in favor not only with man, but he increased in this with Yahweh. He increased. That means he had to learn things. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. This passage will show us that just because the Bible says that somebody knows all things, doesn't mean that they know all things. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that to be an objector to myself, but I think you understand what I'm saying. And we should, because we recognize in this assembly that the word all in the Bible is many, many times used in a limited sense. One man eateth all things. Another person who is weak in the faith eateth herbs. Well, we know, according in harmonization with the law of Yahweh, that the man that eats all things, the understanding is he eats all kosher, all clean things. Not that he eats crab and shrimp and pig and things like this. But in 1 John 2, verse 20, He's speaking to the believers, John is, and he says, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Now, he's talking to believers here, brethren. And he tells these believers that they know all things. Now, I don't think anybody in here is going to say that we know the day nor the, or the hour of, his, of the Messiah's second coming. So, therefore, we don't know all things. But yet, the Bible says, as believers, we do know all things. But all is used in a limited fashion, as it is so many times in the Scriptures. Paul wrote to Timothy in one of, one of his epistles to Timothy. He said this, he said, The Heavenly Father, and I'm paraphrasing, gives us all things to richly enjoy. 
But we know that Yahweh doesn't give us all things all-inclusive richly to enjoy. You know, for instance, Yahweh does not give us theft to enjoy. You know, but all-inclusive theft would be included in all. But we know that all is used in a limited fashion. Paul said, all things are lawful to me. Did Paul mean that it was lawful for him to commit adultery? No, he did not mean that at all. Once again, reading in context, you'll find that he was using all in a limited fashion. You know, all through the Bible, we find that prophets knew secret things. For instance, we won't turn here, but in 2 Kings 5, verses 19 through 27, we have part of the story where Naaman, the leper, had been cleansed of leprosy. And we know that Elisha cleansed him by sending out his servant and telling him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Well, Gehazi jumped the gun a little bit there after Naaman was cleansed, and Elisha had already told him, listen, we're not going to take any gifts that Naaman has to offer us. But Gehazi followed Naaman and got some gifts from Naaman. And Elisha was back at the house. But when Gehazi got back, Elisha said, Did not my heart go with thee, Gehazi? I know what you have done. Now, does this mean that Elisha is Yahweh? No. But it means that as a prophet, there were some things that Yahweh revealed to Elisha that he didn't just reveal to the average Joe. Elisha was a prophet. And he knew that Gehazi had taken because his heart went with Gehazi. Yahweh allowed him to have that knowledge. Yahweh alone knows the hearts of men all inclusive. 1 Kings 8.39 would prove that. But Yahweh can grant power to individual human beings to know certain things. He could grant Elisha the power to know that about Gehazi. But he did not grant Gehazi that same power to know, let's say, something about Elisha. At least not in that story or that context. And so I think what we need to understand is that Yeshua knew hearts and he knew all things in a limited sense. But it was because he was a prophet. The Bible calls him a prophet over and over and over again in the New Testament. And so there was things that he knew that everybody didn't know. But there were things that he didn't know showing that he was not the Father, showing that he's not the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, because he does not know the day nor the hour. As we move along, we need to understand that there are dissimilarities between the character of Yahweh and the attributes of Yahweh and of Yeshua. When we dealt with Hebrews 1, we talked about how that Yeshua, according to Hebrews 1 verse 3, was the copy of Yahweh's own being. The Greek word is character, and it literally means the seal that is left by a signet ring. Yahweh is described as the ring. It's dipped in wax and the seal is left and the seal is that which Yeshua is described as. And so Yeshua being a copy of Yahweh means what? Well, it means that He has not always existed. Many people teach that He is co-eternal with the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that He pre-existed as a literal spirit being in heaven prior to His being begotten, which is contradictory to itself. But because he's a copy, he cannot share the attribute of eternality with Yahweh because he is the character of Yahweh, whereas Yahweh is never called the character of Yeshua. However, that being said, there are many similarities between the Father and the Son. And this should not surprise us because a son generally receives character traits from his father, which in this case, the father is not a human being. The Father is the Most High. And so he would automatically share some character traits of his Father. 
just like I've been mistaken for my father two or three times by people in a crowd. They thought I was my dad. Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, a lot of people think, as we're turning, Isaiah 42, verse 8, a lot of people think that because Yahweh shared his glory with Yeshua, that Yeshua must be Yahweh because of what Yahweh said in Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And so they say, see, Yahweh says he will not give his glory to another. And so if we find that the Son has the glory of Yahweh, then he must be Yahweh. But notice the context, and we won't read the entire chapter of 42, but we can stay right here in verse 8 and prove that such is not the case. Notice the context is Yahweh sharing his glory to false gods and to idols. He will not give his glory to another, comma, neither my praise to graven images. The part about praise to graven images is, is a synonymous repetition of giving glory to another. Yahweh does never give his glory to a false god or false idol. He just doesn't do it. Look at Isaiah 48, verse 11. Yahweh says, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another. Basically, he reiterates Isaiah 42, verse 8. But look at verse 5. Yahweh says in verse 5, I have even from the beginning declared it to thee before it came to pass. I showed it thee, lest thou shouldest say, mine idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. The whole context of Isaiah 48 is that they shouldn't trust in graven images and idols and false gods. And Yahweh says, I'm not giving my glory to another in that context. But Yahweh does share His glory with His Son. Matthew 16, verse 27, teaches us that Yeshua, when He comes back, or we could say that Yahweh came the first time and Yahweh is going to come the second time if, with a proper understanding. But when Yeshua returns, it will be in the glory of His Father. That's how He's going to come. Look at Revelation chapter 21. This is one that is not known by um, most people. Revelation 21 verses 10 through 11. Revelation 21, 10 through 11 says, And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from Elohim, having the glory of Elohim. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. What had the glory of Elohim? The city Jerusalem. Now, Yahweh doesn't share His glory with another, right? But what is Jerusalem doing coming down, having the glory of Yahweh? Well, it's because when we rightly divide Isaiah 42 and 8 and Isaiah 48 and 11, we see that it's not talking about Yahweh sharing His glory with either His Son or with Jerusalem or with me and Brother Paul and Brother Jerry and Brother Arnold and Brother Randy. Why do I say that? 1 Corinthians 11:7 says that man is in the what? The image and the what? The glory of Elohim. And so we have to rightly divide the word of truth. Matthew chapter 9. What about this issue of forgiving sins? Only Yahweh can forgive sins. Verse 2. Reading the last part of verse 2, our Messiah, the very Son of Yahweh, says, Thy sins be forgiven thee. If we read the entire context 
We find in verse 3, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Yeshua, knowing their thoughts, once again he was a prophet, he said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, what did they say? They marveled and glorified Elohim, which had given such power unto men. Had Yahweh given Yeshua the power to forgive sins? You know, Yeshua said, I can of mine own self do nothing. He said, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he also said, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. That's John 5.30, John 8.28, and John 14.10. Yahweh gave Yeshua his Son the authority and the power to forgive sins, to judge men, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, etc., etc. He is Yahweh's representative with power to act in Yahweh's name. You know, the word power in Matthew 9, verse 2, is from the same Greek word translated authority in John 5, verse 27, where Yeshua says He doesn't do anything of Himself, but only that which the Father has given Him and taught Him and told Him. This same power was given to the angel of Yahweh. If you read Exodus 23, verses 20 through 21, the angel of Yahweh had the power to not forgive sins of Israel or to forgive sins of Israel. That's Exodus 23, 20 through 21. So once again, Yahweh can give power to His Son to do certain things. In this case, He gave Him power unto men, unto a man, to forgive sins here on earth. But what about this issue of, of sins being atoned for? Because while we're on the subject of the forgiveness of sins, many people believe that Yeshua was the one true God Almighty because only the death of God could atone for a man's sins. They say that the death of a man would not be sufficient. You know, this is another example of the philosophy of men that is contrary to the Scriptures. The Scriptures never say that only the death of Yahweh can forgive sins. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that Yahweh cannot have death come upon him. He alone hath immortality. He is the living Elohim. But Hebrews 9.22 says, quote, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And so that's one requirement. There has to be the shedding of blood, right? Another requirement was that a sacrifice had to be without blemish. That was another requirement. And in Yeshua's case, this meant that he was without sin, just like that Passover lamb was without blemish. Yahweh Almighty did not have to die. Only the blood of a sinless man was required. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Yeshua was that only sinless man. 1 John 3, verse 5. Beginning at verse 4, it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. The reason that Yeshua was revealed unto us was to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. That's where it would be borderline or be blasphemy if you were to say that He had sin in Him because the Bible says that in Him there is no sin. He was sinless. He had to be in order to be that sacrifice. Romans 5 tells us 
essentially, that by one man many were made sinners. And so then also by one man many shall be made righteous. Romans 5.19. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For since by one man came death, then even so by one man came the resurrection of the dead. Are you saying, Brother Matthew, that a man died for our sins? Absolutely. But not just Matthew Jansen, but the very Son of Yahweh. The sinless Son of Yahweh. Okay, okay, Brother Matthew, I see what you're saying there, but what about who was pierced on the torture stake? Wasn't it Yahweh that was pierced on the torture stake? Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. Yahweh's speaking now, and Yahweh says, And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. But then he says, And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Yahweh says that they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. In John 19.37, this scripture is quoted. And I don't know whether it's a quotation from the Septuagint or from the Masoretic text, because both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text have Yahweh saying, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. But in John 19.37, it says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. I believe that the text in Zechariah 12.10 is absolutely correct when Yahweh says, they shall look upon me. But is the understanding of Trinitarians and oneness theologians correct in doing away with everything that we've learned up to now and saying, well, this must mean somehow the Son is God Almighty? I don't believe so. If you will recall, for an example, Matthew 25, verse 40, where Yeshua Himself said these words, For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. Insomuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Matthew 25, verse 40. If Yeshua could say that when we give to a needy brethren, we're actually giving to Him, how much more could Yahweh say this concerning the piercing of His own flesh and blood child? They shall look upon Me whom they have pierced. Insomuch as you have pierced My Son, you have done it unto Me. And this brings us right into the fact of Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where the Bible says, Paul speaking, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to shepherd the church or the assembly of Elohim which He hath purchased with His own blood. That God died? Well, no, Yahweh cannot die. Once again, He's immortal. But you know both the American Bible Society and the Institute for New Testament Research in Germany which produces the Nestle Alon Greek text of the New Testament agree that the manuscript evidence supports the reading the blood of His own or the blood of His own Son. And isn't Yeshua the blood of Yahweh? Didn't He come forth from heaven? He said, I came down from above. Did He not? Was He not in the Father's bosom before He came to this earth? Did He not have a heavenly origin and not an earthly origin? Yeshua was Yahweh's own blood. He was Yahweh's own Son. It is not uncommon for fathers to speak of their children as their own flesh and blood. Benjamin is my blood. Elijah is my flesh and blood. 
And Elohim shed his own blood when he gave his son over to death. Hallelujah. Also, consider the story in Exodus chapter 7. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 7. Verse 16. And thou shalt say unto him, Yahweh, Elohim of the Hebrews, hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Thus saith Yahweh, listen carefully to verse 17, In this thou shalt know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And Yahweh spake unto Moses. Now, Yahweh just said, I'm going to strike the waters with the rod that is in my hand. Yahweh speaking. Verse 19, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all the pools of the water that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Verse 20, And Moses and Aaron did so as Yahweh commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Now, did Yahweh strike the river with the rod that was in his hand? Absolutely he did. But how did he do it? Aaron's hand and Aaron's rod is equated in this passage with Yahweh's hand and with Yahweh's rod. So therefore we can see how that Yahweh shed his own blood. Even more so when we're dealing with the father and the son versus the father and Aaron. No one believes that Aaron must be Yahweh because first it says it's the hand of Yahweh. Then it says it's the hand of Aaron. Using Trinitarian logic, Aaron must be somehow a manifestation of Yahweh. Aaron was Yahweh's vehicle. He was Yahweh's vice regent on earth at that time. Let's move along to Jeremiah chapter 23. We'll begin at verse 5. This is usually agreed to be a messianic prophecy. In Jeremiah 23 verses 5 through 6, the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called Yahweh our righteousness. Or if you have a side column it will say Yahweh Zidkanu. And so here our Messiah is given the name Yahweh Zidkanu. Okay? Now people say well that must mean he is God Almighty. But if this verse, which shows that the Son is given the name Yahweh, Zidkanu, means that He is Yahweh, then what about Jeremiah 33? Look at Jeremiah 33, verse 15 and 16. Jeremiah 33:15. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, Yahweh our righteousness. It is the exact same name in, in Hebrew, Yahweh Zidkenu. Jerusalem is called Yahweh Zidkenu. Now, is Jerusalem Yahweh? No. But Yahweh 
gives Jerusalem his name just like Yahweh gives his son his name, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. But I want you to notice, if you're reading a King James Bible, notice how in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, they put the Lord our righteousness in all capital letters. But in Jeremiah 33, 16, the King James translators did not do that. Now, why was that? Maybe they thought it would suggest, or shall I say, disprove their belief that the Son was really the Father, or that the Son was really God. Why would they capitalize it in one place and not capitalize it in another place? But yet it reads the exact same in the Hebrew text. Something to think about. What about Isaiah 40, verse 3? This will be the last one we look at today. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Elohim. This passage is quoted, and I'm going to turn there, in Matthew chapter 3 by John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, going over to Matthew 3, verse 3. Verse 1 tells us that it is Yohanan, John. He is, he is preaching, and he says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Make his paths straight. Now, we've already seen, I'm going to deal with this in a little bit different fashion, but we've already seen how that Aaron's hand and Yahweh's hand are equated in Exodus 7. And so when John says that he's preparing Yahweh's way, how much more can Yeshua be equated with Yahweh if Aaron was equated with Yahweh? However, Luke chapter 3 aids our understanding of Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. Luke 3, verse 4 through 6. As it is written, John is speaking, Luke is recording it. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make his path straight. But notice verses 5 and 6. How is this to be done? Move out of the way because Yahweh himself is coming. Well, in one sense, I have no problem with that. But what is the proper understanding that Luke has given? Verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of Elohim. Prepare ye the way of Yahweh does not mean, in context, move out of the way because Yahweh is coming. And so when Yeshua comes, then believe that he is Yahweh. How was this way of Yahweh to be prepared? Luke 3, verses 5 and 6 tell us that it was to be prepared by filling valleys, by leveling mountains, and by straightening paths. This work is to not be understood literally, literal mountains, literal valleys, literal paths, but spiritually through the humbling of those in exalted positions and the restoration of a path, the restoration of truth. Who was to do that work? In John 4, verse 34 Yeshua says, quote, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. End of quote. Almighty Yahweh appointed his son, Yeshua the Messiah, to finish his work. Yeshua was thus Yahweh's instrument in the accomplishment of his great plan. Prepare you the way of Yahweh meant that Yeshua was coming to finish the work of Almighty Yahweh. We'll close by going to John 14, which I think is fitting to end the message and to end this particular topic on the message. In John 14, verse 6, Yeshua saith unto him, I am the way. 
Prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Who is the way? Yeshua is the way. The truth and the life. And then he says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the means through which Yahweh will finish his work. And so as we close, when we look at attributes and characteristics of the Father and the Son, we see that they share many characteristics and many attributes because, contrary to popular belief in the world today in Christianity, Yeshua really is the Son of Yahweh and not the second person of a fictitious trinity. And hallelujah, as John 6, verse 69 says, the disciples, we believe and we are sure that thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living Elohim. Let's close in prayer and then we'll take comments and questions if we have any. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We love your word, Father Yahweh. Let us not be ashamed of your word. Father Yahweh, let us continue to seek and to study your word on this subject and on many others, Father. Not worrying about what man may say. Not worrying about how we're looked at in society by what we believe. But simply by what the word of Yahweh has to tell us. Father, we glorify you as the creator and as the sustainer of the universe. Father, we give you your rightful position that Christianity has taken away from you. And Father Yahweh, we restore the position of the Son of Yahweh back, Father Yahweh, as your Son, as our mediator. And we give him homage and praise as well, Father, not as you, but as whom you appointed him to be. And so, Father Yahweh, we thank you and we praise you so much. And we hallow your name, Father Yahweh. Through your Son we pray. Amen.